Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Fran Wild. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Marie Bilodeau. And you've tuned into a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is the opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, the never-ending. Is it never-ending, Marie? Or, or is there a point that we reach it and say, fuck it, I know everything I'm going to know. I don't need to know anymore. I have a feeling that the point to reach there is more along the lines of, fuck it, I don't want to learn anything more. I'm so sick of this shit. <laughs> and yet, we just keep cramming more goodness into our heads. <laughs> there is so much to cram indeed, and there... so much empty space up there to cram into. <laughs> <laughs> so very true. So very true. Marie Billadeau, my co-host for this episode, thank you so much for coming back. We had a blast with the last session. I'm glad you came back to do it again. Uh, are, you, are you ready to delve into into the creative abyss once again. I am so excited that when I got your invitation to come back, I, I giggled like a maniac. So thank you. I am very ready. <laughs> and friends, <laughs> Marie Bilodeau giggling like a maniac is a chilling, <laughs> chilling moment. I can only imagine your roommate kind of like had chills run up her spine when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> She just ignores me by now. It's good. <laughs> yeah, good call. Good call. Well, Marie, what, what are you rocking for libation tonight? I am rocking some wonderful H2O in a Wonder Woman cup. Oh, in a Wonder Woman cup. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like a superhero Wonder Woman. Like she's got her like lasso of truth out about to whack people in the head. Stepping it up. Stepping up oh, the game oh. of the agua. I, I respect that. I will, I will endeavor to make this introduction worthy of your Wonder Woman cup. <laughs> Thank you. It is appreciated. Well, I, I do my best. I do my best. Well, sit back, relax. Let me let me introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Oh, yes. I am so excited. Go ahead. <laughs> Very good. Friends, she was born in Philadelphia in the late 1900s and grew up on the Chesapeake Bay. Now, I can tell you, I grew up in that region. And one thing I can tell you about those people is they love telling stories. There's something about the mindset that they can't just tell you about something that happened. They have to set it up. They have to layer it with nuanced perceptions and do everything they can to immerse you in the experience. Now, this was the case with many of the members of our guest host's family. Uh, by all accounts, many of them actually practiced circular breathing so they wouldn't have to actually pause in the recounting of their fabulous tales. Now, while this was certainly very entertaining, our young guest host noticed that the stories would change from one telling to the next. And this became something of a burr under her saddle, as it were, and she she has been quoted as saying, I was a writer the moment I realized you could make words stick around by writing them down. 
Now, she was an avid reader, getting her library card as soon as she could. She quickly gravitated to the more speculative flavors of literature, and Mrs. C., the local librarian, encouraged our young bibliophile to write. Uh, she was also on a first-name basis with the local indie bookstore owners, who would, on occasion, slip her an advanced reader copy of some forthcoming book in exchange for her shelving some books or sharing her thoughts on the latest book she had read. Her first efforts at writing were fan fiction, friends, writing new scripts for the Super Friends and Star Blazer cartoons that she and her friends would then act out. In third grade, she wrote a poem, a lyrical ode to a flying horse that was later published in the third grade newspaper. And friends, that moment, seeing her words immortalized in ink and newsprint was a galvanized moment. Writing would be in her future. Now, it's important to note that many members of her family were engineers, but they totally encouraged our guest host's writerly impulses, if for no other reason than to have someone who could edit their papers for them. Uh, the relevance of these relations' scientific roots will become relevant all too soon. Now, the literary path stretched out before her, and she walked it with gusto. She attended the University of Virginia and earned a Bachelor of Arts degree with honors in English in 1994. And in 96, she scored an MFA in poetry from Warren Wilson College. Now, during this time, she was also a writing instructor and served on the literary arts faculty at the Carver Center for Arts and Technology. Then, in 2001, she earned a master's degree in... Wait a minute. No, no, this can't be right. I, mu I must have pasted someone else's bio in here. It says she earned a master's degree at the University of Baltimore in information architecture and interactive design. That's accurate. What madness is this? Oh, yes, dear friends. Our guest host is a geek with a capital G, baby. In fact, her curriculum vitae includes numerous distinguished tenures in the technological field including adjunct professor at Loyola and the University of Baltimore teaching JavaScript and Flash development. That's kind of dating her. <laughs> and, <laughs> and director of web services at the Park School of Baltimore. She wrote Black & Decker's online tool school guides and oh my published... God, get out of my LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> and published articles that bridge the gap between researchers and readers with topics including self-driving cars, monofluidic bubble pumps, and a Jesuit psychologist's efforts to quantify the soul. Uh, she also helped craft immersive games and narratives in 3D online platforms with Resabble Inc. and Bespoke Interactive. So clearly, the love of story hadn't fled her heart. Just the opposite, actually. She was writing a lot. Well, okay. To be perfectly honest, she was starting a lot of stories and editing those opening words to literary perfection before abandoning them for the next fabulous tale. Now, Marie, do you feel that breeze that just blew through the virtual studio? 
I did feel it. That is the wind generated by a thousand RTP listeners nodding their heads in recognition and acknowledgement of starting stories and not finishing them. And trust me, <laughs> my head is bobbing right there along with them. But then... <laughs> 2011 happened, and if there is a year where the seeds of destiny were planted for our guest host, it was 2011, specifically October of 2011, because it was then that she attended Viable Paradise, one of the many distinguished writing workshops of which authors can avail themselves. Two things happened in that workshop that set the stage for the wonders to come. One was a conversation with Stephen Gould. Now, Stephen commented on a recipe our guest host had included in the back of a foreign service manual she had drafted. Uh, the recipe was titled Elephant Stew, the first instruction of which was cut the elephant into bite-sized pieces. <laughs> Master it's Gould, a long process. Indeed, I have no doubt. Master Gould observed that same instruction could also be applied to crafting a novel. And that single observation set off a cascade of events that would lead to a superb interview series by our guest host titled Cooking the Books. Marvelous and insightful interviews with a constellation of literary luminaries on the cross-section of food and writing. And the other thing that happened at the 2011 Viable Paradise Workshop was a critique of the short story she took with her titled Debit. Now, James McDonald sat down with her and told her it wasn't a short story. Hopes of all future as a writer dashed against the rocks of despair. Then he said, it's a novel. Elation, redemption, trumpets, cannons, and champagne. And then he said... And you should write it in the next 90 days. Which, through much wailing and gnashing of teeth, and an incredible journey of discovery of her own writerly mojo and the value of having wise friends, she actually did. And that journey continued with short fiction published in Asimov's Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Nature, and the Impossible Futures Anthology. When her debut novel, Updraft, published by Tor, was released into the world, it was nominated for a Nebula and won both the Andre Norton and the Compton Crook Award. The sequel, Cloudbound, is set for release September 27th, 2016, and by the way, is now available for pre-order. And Tor just released her novella, The Jewel and Her Lapidary, a tale spun from a short story, The Topaz Marquise, that appeared in Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Friends, her favorite type of tree is giant ferns and the baobab tree from Le Petit Prince. In spite of her geekish impulses, she professes to be numerically challenged. She has skydived indoors. And her greatest role models are her peers and her writing groups, the people who nudge her on even when the going is tough and whom she nudges back now and then. Dear friends, please welcome to the big comfy writer's chair here at the round table, Fran Wild. Fran, my God, what a diverse and epic background you have. Uh, uh, the launching of the novel, starting a whole new threshold of awesomeness in your writerly career. Uh, I, I'm delighted that we were to find some time to, to, to share some thoughts with you about your writerly craft. Man, thank you so much. 
Thank you for having me. You're absolutely welcome. Uh, really, the pleasure is all ours. You know, before we start the clock, Fran, I have a question. Um, and and this is just a curiosity on my part. Um, obviously, I, I, I perused your LinkedIn. I checked your interviews. I did all the things. Yes, um, you were very thorough. Very thorough, yes. <laughs> And, and I noticed in some of the early interviews, there was a reference to a book called Bone Arrow, mm-hmm. which I can only assume ultimately became Updraft. Correct. I'm curious then, uh, uh, how did that name transition happen? Uh, I'm just, I'm intrigued. Obviously, it was Bone Arrow in your head as you were working it, as you were, as you were doing it, interviewing it, preparing people for it. Uh, but then the, the title changed. How did that happen? Oh, titles in um, publishing are pretty hard. And when I first wrote this, the short story that became the novel, um, the title was Bone Arrow Glass Tooth. And as I moved along uh, in the development process, I shortened it and it was sold as Bone Arrow. But I, I went in knowing that that probably wasn't going to be the final title. Uh, I actually wrote this up as a cartoon that I put up on Chuck Wendig's Terrible Minds blog last year <laughs> about how it's how a book gets its title. And there are lots of different pitfalls along the way. There's There are um, many pieces that go into the choosing of a title, and it really is um, quite a... a occasionally a collaborative process between a lot of people who know more than I do about marketing and and selling books. Demographics Uh, and all those things, yes. (laughs) And um, what was amazing was that when it came down to it at the very last minute, um, the choice of the title uh, was another editor at Tour, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who oh, said, gosh. no, Updraft is your title. And the minute he said that, I said, you're right. It, that's, that's perfect because I'm, I'm dealing with updrafts, which are the strong winds that um, generate near very steep, very high buildings, sort of um, as part of the, the physical effect of that very high building, right. uh, as well as general winds. So um, It just made sense. It made sense. And the first time I read from the book after the title had been decided upon, I read a section that had the word updraft in it and I just smiled because I knew it was right. <laughs> and that was, that was wonderful. Awesome. Cool. But, I, I mean, it's, you know, you're very lucky if you go in with a title and you, and it makes it all the way through the process, that's magic. And that's something that I <laughs> haven't yet achieved, but someday. Someday. And, and you know, if you don't, that's okay. It's this, the title's nice. The story is probably the essence of what is truly good and wonderful in the writer's craft. Oh, totally. Right. Totally. Well, let me let me set the clock. Thank you for that. That was that was just an idle curiosity that that, that popped up and I would like to I, I I wouldn't have been able to sleep if I didn't at least hear part of that story. So, thank <laughs> you for that. But for now, let's let's dive into the real interview segment. I'm going to go ahead and set the clock. And I have no doubt we'll ignore it, but that's fine, too. Um, I'm going to start us off, Fran. Uh, one aspect of your background I, I didn't mention was back in 2010, um, when you had kind of committed to the writerly craft, uh, you had mentioned in one of your interviews that you had been, uh, you joined up on the, the SFF online writing workshop and that you critiqued there for a while mm-hmm. before dropping a story. And while I can certainly appreciate the value of that strategy. I was wondering if you could, for our listeners, uh, explain why you critiqued before you dropped a story uh, and, and what value there is in 
the critiquing process on your part as a writer? Well, I think um, the the online writing workshop at the the SFOWW or online writing workshop has um, a really particularly good place in um, the web ecology for emerging sci-fi fantasy and horror writers, which is that it provides a community where people can go in and um, put up work and get critiqued, but you are encouraged to um, critique a lot of other work. You don't just go in and say, here's my piece and, and people give you feedback. You actually need to donate some of your time to other people's work in order to be able to post. Excellent. Um, which is fantastic. And it does generate a lot of discussion. I, I still have friends from that workshop who are still writing, still in the business. Um, one of them it was a fellow Compton Crook Award nominee, um, Josh Vaught, who is fantastic. And, and we've just, it, it, it makes for a lot of good connections. And so I was really glad that I did that as an as just to start off. I had been through the critique process before. It, that wasn't something that I was particularly anxious about, but I had never submitted fiction. It had already always been poetry and essays. Okay. And I had I had done that from both sides. So the fiction was new and I wanted to get a feel for how um, people with the intensity level and how people were phrasing things and other things. So it was really nice to, to a good way to get my feet wet. Sure. Test the waters as it were. See how people respond to critiques and so on. Yeah. It's always whenever you go into a new community, it's really good to just not charge in and, and assume that everybody will become accustomed to your ways you sort of gauge the tone of the sure. of the area and and every community has its own traditions and its own sort of culture and if you come crashing in with you know with no awareness of that it's it makes for a very hard landing sure but if you if you sort of wait and, and test the waters it's, well, it's and demonstrate your respect for the community and, that uh, yeah. is exactly the yeah, phrase yeah absolutely. i think and i think that's important anywhere Oh, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. I'm, I'm curious, Fran, just stepping away from the, the SFFOWW. <laughs> There's some amazing graduates from that. I think uh, Beth Cato, Elliot de Bodard, um, mm. and Jemison have all been through it at, at one point or another. And, you know, for some of us, it's been a while since we've been back, but they're still there and they're doing sure. great. Is there a value, just, just in general, not necessarily in the context of an online writing group, but uh, uh, we've had other people discuss the merits of being able to critique a story effectively. Do you, do you feel you, you, you have critique chops? And, and what does that give you as a writer to be able to effectively uh, uh, assess the merit and value and articulate that merit and value to, of someone else's story? I think there are a lot of different critique styles out there, and I think they're all very important to the critique process. Mm. Um, there are lots of people who will give a critique from their point of view, from you know whether they liked it or not. My approach is, is a little bit different because I was a teacher for so long. Um, I, I taught in different venues to different age groups, but I tend to try and, and, and think about where the writer is coming from and what their goals are. And if I can get a beat on that, then I, I look for what the story is, is doing that supports those goals, as well as um, how they could move forward and, and do things that would support them stronger. I don't believe 
in saying I'm not your reader. If I'm engaging with a text, I, I am a reader for that text. And sure. if it's, you know, if it's not my style, then I, I just kind of have to suck it up and say, okay, but how would I engage with this if it was my style and, and try and go from there? Because people have, you know, trusted me with this, this piece of fiction and I really want to engage with it and, and see their trust through. Do you find it can, it makes you a better writer of your own fiction to, to be able to effectively critique someone else? I think the answer is yes, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm dialing that because it is sometimes uh, very hard to do both. It's hard to write and write your own work and critique at the same time. Oh, it's God, the same yes. Teaching no. or with anything else. I would uh, never advocate that under no circumstances. <laughs> the inner editor is the bane of most of our existences. We want to throw that son of a bitch in a, in a closet and just lock him <laughs> away for the first draft at least. But also um, another thing, along with critiquing, one of the other things that's really good to do for beginning writers is reading um, what's called slush or advanced reading for a um, literary magazine or a sci-fi magazine, ah, yes. which I did for a year and a half. Michael and Lynn are going to have to correct me on that. But I, I read for Michael and Lynn Thomas at Apex right. for a long time. And I learned a lot just by reading the submissions that came in, um, looking at what was effective um, and what grabbed you on the first read through and what, you know, tended to get lost those sort of things really made an impression i can see that i can see, but ultimately really when you come right down to it that's going back to that uh, acquiring that critical eye uh because people people without who haven't developed a critical uh perspective of literature would look at a a, a bad slush submission for example and and feel instinctively this is not a good submission but if you can't figure out why it's not good and what is it that, that could be shorn up or what edits would, would make it better, then the value of that experience is kind of dubious, yes? Um, or no. I mean, no. feel free to disagree. I just, you know, I'm just the host. That's, that's a lie. <laughs> just, just the host. I can just my, my, my introduction of you. and yeah. I can just kick you off anytime. It's good. That's right. <laughs> No pressure. No, really. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. Uh, no, I think um, it's it's more nuanced than that. I think that um, it it helps to have a good reading background. But I mean, it, at this point, you can't expect people to have read absolutely everything going on in science fiction. That is that is almost like saying you have to know you know every Charlie Parker lick in jazz. Right. There is just. Um, but having read broadly and also having um, a good idea of what goes into a story and what is fun to read or what is appealing to read is super important. And it, it, you build those muscles up when you read um, for magazines, when you read Slush. That makes especially, sense. Because it comes in so fast and there's so much of it. Sure. And, and just, just the, the, the input, the consumption of all of that story, I, I can see it actually creating a kind of, when you see the same thing over and over again, for example, the repetition of, of passive voice, you know, to invoke the, the great bugaboo of, of literature, um, or, or whatever. I, I can see how the repeated consumptions of that and, and the broadening of your, 
uh, of your reading scope would would actually cultivate that. So I I amend my my previous statement, and uh, you're absolutely right, uh, guest host. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Fran Wild after this brief promotional break. I'm the first. The first of a new kind of human being. The first and only true artificial intelligence. I'm not a huge fan of that term, though. I prefer not to use the term stranded time traveler. I am merely on an extended vacation. Against my will. Talking with normal people is almost impossible. I'm constantly on guard. What did you do over the weekend? I definitely didn't drink any blood. (laughs) I'd never do a thing like that. I mean, brother, when you crash your spaceship on Earth, you are pretty much shit out of luck. We don't need aliens anymore. Not when people have Twitter and YouTube and podcasts and Periscope and Voibox and Winger and heaven knows what else. I don't see the point in anyone living in the coffin. Right? Who benefits from our silence? Certainly not us. Look, I I could take out this interview guy. I I mean, I could, like, wrap this chain around his neck and kill him right now. Do you have any more questions for us? Well, I got a few, so if you want to hold off on wrapping around the, the chain, that would be good. This is Jared Axelrod. Join me on the voice of Free Planet X, where I interview aliens and time travelers, vampires and witches, advanced AIs and ancient monstrosities. It's This American Life for a science fictional universe, and it's only at planetx.libsyn.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Fran Wilde. Marie, help me out here. Bail me out of, of my this this hole I've dug myself into. <laughs> I know you've got questions for Fran. I'm I'm turning it over to you, ma'am. I, I was enjoying the show myself. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad. One of the things I find absolutely fascinating about Updraft, and I'm sure it'll be the same thing for the sequel as well, is the world building that you bring into your stories. Now, you did mention that you come from uh, quite an engineering family as well, and, and Updraft definitely has that feel of of solid background and, and world building and technology and all that. And I was curious about your creative journey to that. Do you usually come up with the world to start with, or is it the story or the characters that gets you going on the story? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> yes, awesome. Um, it depends on the story. With Updraft in particular, um, the characters were what got me going, but the original story set in this world was a, a world-building story. I was writing about the city, and I had some characters that were um, functioning within the city and were, that were giving um, the the articulated wings were there, and there were some other things that were already in the very, very early um, draft of the first story. But when I started writing what was first Bone Arrow, as we discussed, and and then became Updraft, um, I wrote a short story about a wing, f- uh, an armed wing fight in a wind tunnel, which people who have read Updraft would recognize as as something that occurs in the book. And it took me a little while to realize that I was fascinated with learning more about what kind of culture would put its people in that position and make them fight in order to be heard. So the it all started off interesting you, but the yeah. world building is just, your world building is so rich and strong. It, wow. it was, it, I mean, it's it's not just, I, I sat at the dinner table and heard lots of stories of the way things worked. <laughs> 
Um, and I, I always sort of felt like engineering was kind of its own magic um, in a way. It doesn't get as much credit as you know the, some of some of the sciences, but um, I, it is when you come down to it, the bolt turning magic that makes things happen. And I love bridges. I, I have grown to really love wings and the way that they're um, formed and shaped. I love boats and um, all <laughs> sorts of all sorts of different um, pieces of mechanics that work together to to get you someplace or to connect a community. Um, and I I really wanted to put that into the world because once I had the the towers of living bone above the clouds. All of these things became, how would you live in that? What would you do to get by? Where would things come from? Um, you know, barring the occasional giant, invisible, carnivorous flying cephalopod. <laughs> it's barring that, of course. Just, you know, things happen. It's no big deal. <laughs> well, and that's interesting. I remember uh, in your Aletheia Contis uh, interview where I pulled oh the... Oh my gosh, you well, went deep. I did, I did. But, you know, that's where I got the numerically challenged quote. Yeah. But the, the, other, the other word that you invoked was curious. And I, that quality in a writer, in, in a creative in general, I think, has been coming up in my awareness more and more recently. And I honestly feel... Uh, uh, you know, you had mentioned that you became curious as to what sort of culture would put its people uh, with wings in a wind tunnel, uh, and that led to this massive world building. This this you know trinity of novels, possibly more, uh, uh, certainly uh, multiple short stories and, and other works devolving from it. That curiosity that that impels you to continue the exploration past the work that you've done. Um, do you do anything to to foster that, or is that just kind of in something that was hardwired into your life as a child? Um, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, <laughs> she said <laughs> dubiously. <laughs> interesting question, Dave. Yes. I need to take a sip of my water. <laughs> Ruminate on the possibilities. And, and honestly, I've been known to ask questions that have no freaking answer. So feel free to say, I, I don't know. I just, I would imagine that, you know, curiosity, I think, is the most revered quality, not just of the creative, but I think of, of, of the human being. Uh, uh, and people that, you know, obviously you, you, you recognize that in yourself. I'm just curious if there's anything that you do in your life that to, to foster that or to hone that curiosity, to keep those, those teeth sharp, as it were. Um, I did before I started writing books. Now all I do is write books. <laughs> <laughs> Which is its own exercise in curiosity anyway. But what, what did you used to do? Oh, um, I, I tended towards learning something and trying to achieve competence in it over a certain number of years. Programming is a good example. Sure. Um, I was um, very invested for a while in um, different kinds of art and photography. Uh, my husband and I had a dark room at one point before we were married, and we used to like to you know, learn dark technique and old school stuff you know back in right. the last millennium before you had you know when you had film and things like that um i a lot of different topics interest me and it was it's often very hard for me to 
um, go through that ramp up where I don't know anything because I want to know everything. And then <laughs> after a little while, it, it gets better because the, the information sort of spreads out and you can see it better. But okay. I guess that, so yeah, I think curiosity is pretty standard for me. Um, there were definitely some times where I had convinced myself early on that I couldn't do something, so I didn't try it until much, much later. And um, programming is a great example because I, I had um, learned some early programming languages when I was a kid. And then I went into a computer course and I was the only girl there. And I just thought, oh, well, this isn't for me. I'm going to go do the the arts and I did that and that was wonderful and I got some great skills from that and I eventually uh, was able to parlay those skills into a job during college. I worked as a jeweler's assistant um, for most of college because I had done um, some jewelry and some um, silversmithing in high school and so instead of becoming a computer programmer early I went and, and did these other things which was great but as Things started to come around for me, and I realized that I really did enjoy um, computer modeling and computer um, game design. I went back to do an MFA in uh, information architecture and interaction design, which was also a publications design program, and I really liked that part of it, too. Um, now, Joseph Campbell and said, follow I, your bliss. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I was totally doing that. But I, I sat down in front of the computer and started writing. Um, I think I started in HTML that time and then got into a whole series of um, scripting languages and programming languages that if I, if I rattled them off to you now, it would absolutely date me. <laughs> um, but I think PHP, PHP and Ruby are the ones that I still... Uh, are I still see active in the community, but some of the others are, are really, really well, well gone. Um, and it was just, it was so much fun to think structurally and to look at um, computer code as, as a lot like the poetry that I had grown up writing and that I had really learned um, just as far as structures and things that turned um, on language to make things happen. Right. So that that level of curiosity and that level of trying new things, um, I I I hope I never lose. It's just very frustrating when you try new things and they don't work, yeah. <laughs> and you realize you're not very good at them. Well, uh, and and farther down that road of life, uh, uh, I think we find it becomes harder and harder because, as you say, you get busier and busier, and and more and more things are, are filling your days. Uh, the the luxury of learning something. Yeah. is is something that not a lot of us can afford all that often. I was given a, a, a guitar a couple of years ago. I was given a, a guitar and a mandolin, which I, the mandolins are beautiful. Mm. Um, and a friend wasn't using theirs anymore, so it came to me. But the guitar was given to me as a gift because I had voiced a desire back in 2010 to learn it. I really wanted to learn to play because I love to sing. I'm not great at it, but I love to sing. So I thought, well, if I have a guitar, then I can you know, play the guitar and other people can sing and it will be fun. <laughs> and I, I have learned um, not counting rock band the, the the video game i have learned exactly one song in the last six years which song and I'm really which song i can play alouette on the guitar <laughs> <laughs> but in my mind i'm really good at it and uh, so i think that's that's one of those things that if you engage um if you're if you're engaged in doing something that's very intense like writing especially like writing a novel where you have to hold 
everything in your mind and keep it spinning for a long time. Um, having that outlet and being able to do something with your hands or, you know, as exercise is really, really helpful, um, even if you don't get around to it when you're in the, in the depths of drafting. Um, one thing that I still do all the time is I draw. I have notebooks everywhere and little sketch pads, and um, I have a program on my iPad now that I use to um, sketch and draw, and that's, that's really interesting. Uh, and I would imagine, uh, are they are they things inspired by your stories, or you're just just whatever wherever your mind takes you? It depends. Um, the drawing is something that I have always given myself permission to be terrible at. <laughs> I, <laughs> Good for you. Um, I I was deep into the arts programs um, back in the day when I was in school. And um, I was taught that if you go somewhere, you can really appreciate your surroundings if you draw it. And it was an amazing lesson. It was something that was really important to me um, as, as I started to travel. As uh, When I, I got out of school, I took some time and traveled and worked my way around um, seeing different places. And I learned that if I was standing with a pen and a sketch pad and just um, drawing, people would leave you alone. They wouldn't try to talk to you. They might come up and look over your shoulder and see what you were doing. But as soon as they saw that it wasn't very good, they'd go away. And... <laughs> It was a way to be in a place and be experiencing the place without having to rush through it. So I still do that a lot. Um, Sounds not, very zen. It is. It's really zen. It's trying to do it with watercolors sometimes is, is not as zen because watercolors are horrible. But um, <laughs> doing it with, with pencil or with a pen and, and paper is, is something that is very relaxing for me. And it's um, back. Did you by any chance go to the Worldcon that was in London? I did not. Mm. That was that was super amazing, and oh, the, the ability to go was great. But we took a couple of days and went to the British Museum, Ooh. and you know everybody was, you know, oh, you've got to see this and you've got to see that. And it was really cool to see the Rosetta Stone, and it was amazing to see all of these great pieces of art from all around the world <clears throat> that have you know wound up in the British Museum and. Um, <laughs> And, and for me, one of the best parts of it was a couple of times during each day that we were there, I found a seat and I just sketched for a little while. Um, I think I sketched a clock, an old water clock, and I sketched a statue and I tried to sketch one of the large Ramsey's heads that was downstairs and that didn't turn out well at all but, <laughs> but you uh, tried and you would for, for a span of time you and the ramsey's bust were one so <laughs> just the act of, of sitting and observing it in the midst of all this rush of people trying to see everything was was something that i really wanted to do and i enjoyed I think it. that's important and and let me just chime in for every rock bander out there learning rock band songs totally counts it <laughs> uh, totally counts. Absolutely. Um, we, we're, the, the clock is scowling at me, but I've got one last question for you, uh, Fran, before we, before we let you go. Um, I, I've noticed uh, on, on your website and in, in various interviews that you write in universes. Yeah. That, that there's the Bone universe uh, with, with Updraft and Cloudbound, the Gem universe with the Topaz Marquise on Beneath Ceaseless Skies and the Jewel Interlapidary from Tor, uh, the Moon universe, uh, like a wasp uh, to the tongue in Asimov's, which I'm, I'm intrigued that a lot of your 
universes start off as short stories, but that's for another 20 minutes <laughs> with. Um, but uh, this concept of writing in a universe, uh, that's, I mean, obviously writers do that unconsciously, but you clearly have consciously defined this this place somehow. Is there is there more going on than just uh, taxonomy there as far as defining your story settings as universes? You'll have to come back later and, and see. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with with book 20 and book 30 and yeah, all of yeah. I think um, definitely with the with the gem universe that is that it's its own separate thing um, and and I just in my mind keeping them sort of straight in my head um, so putting them in different universes is, is useful there is magic in the gem universe um, the magic in updraft is mostly engineering uh, which is a fun discussion. Um, and then the, the moon universe for now is very much a science fictional universe. Um, there for is, now. For now. For well, now. It, it has, that, that section has kind of, I wouldn't say gone quiet, but I've enjoyed writing um, more, not military fiction, but fiction where um, the characters are adjacent, military adjacent. So it's the nurses and the journalists and, mm, and things okay. like that. The, um, the story that I wrote for Asimov's A Little Later was um, called How to Walk Through Historic Graveyards in the Digital Age. Right. And that was about military optics. Um, and uh, OCR Alpha, which is an, a military font, plays very heavily into it. And the ghost of Tulula Bankhead. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, it has nothing to do with the Moon universe, but I, I really realized that, that that area that I was playing in was a little bit bigger than, than just the moons. But the moons will be back, I'm pretty sure. Excellent. Very cool. Well, I, I hate to say it, there's there's so much more to delve into, but the clock has strapped on a pair of mechanical ring, wings and, and <laughs> leapt off the edge of my Are bookshelf. Are you saying time flies? Time, time flies. Oh. Time fly, I see what you did there. Time flies <laughs> at my throat right now, uh, which I can only assume means we're out of time, uh, or at least I'm going to be very shortly. Um Fran, this this has been a, a genuine delight. Uh, uh, your your multidisciplinary background, your your many perspectives into both story and your story craft. Uh, th this has been a delight. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you again for having me. This has been a load of fun, despite the terrifying um, research that you did on me. I had no idea half of that stuff was out there. Uh, it's all in the interweb. I'm telling you, I don't make this shit up. Uh, uh, Marie, got those just some marvelous stuff strewn uh, uh, in our path during that last 20-ish minutes. Um, what, what are you taking away from that conversation that you're going to tuck into your writer's toolbox? There is so much to take away, but I, I think know. what I really, it's just so much, but what stands out to me right now is uh, not to be afraid to learn something new because you don't know how it'll inspire something else. Absolutely. I quite like that. I do too. I, I do too. And and honestly, you know, I think about my grandfather who lived to be 102 uh, and wow. up until the up until just the final months before he passed, he was teaching himself German. That's awesome. You know, it was. He'd be sitting there with his headphones on, you know, and he'd be spouting German phrases back from the <laughs> audio tape. And that, I think, is vital because, you know, if you're, if you're not learning, if you're not busy learning, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're busy dying. 
uh, I think you got to keep keep exploring those things. For me, it was those the tranquility, those moments of Zen when you allow yourself that moment that isn't storytelling necessarily, that isn't you know whatever it is that you do in air quotes, uh, but is purely. Uh, an exploration uh, the in and of itself for its own sake with no greater purpose no immediate you know no editors to look at it later nobody to judge but allowing that time for a creative endeavor that isn't a part of some larger industry or that you have no intention of being a part of a larger industry I think exercising those creative muscles and in France's case you know exercising the the artistic muscles rather than the the literary muscles uh, uh, expands your creative palette uh, and the discoveries that you make in there I think are vital too so that's that's what really jumped out at me it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah, it's it's it, it, it. I love it too. I love all of this stuff. And friends, if you're loving all of this, I've got good news for you. Uh, uh, in seven days, we're gonna invite Fran back. We're gonna have Marie back. Of course, I'll be here. Party. Party. Uh, and we're going to add to the mix a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who is going to set the table for a brainstorming feast of epic proportions. Uh, it's going to be fabulous. Do make the scene. Um, but it is seven days from now. And I know bad on us for making you wait. Uh, but waiting is good for the soul. Marie... What, what can our listeners do to, to make the torment of these next seven days dramatically diminished uh, and, and, and make them just fly by? Well, I think one of the best ways to do it, in my opinion, is to get some balloons. And balloons. To, balloons, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Party balloons, any color, any type, any style. And then to head into a public area, I recommend a local shopping mall. And then to hand out the balloons to people who smile at you Aww. and see how their smile brightens. Aww. Aww. Do it. My heart just swelled. That was beautiful. <laughs> swelled like a balloon? <laughs> like a balloon. Exactly <laughs> like a balloon. I'm so doing that. That's fabulous. I love that. Yes, do that, dear friends. And I will tell you, as I always do, that you find what you're looking for. So if you're looking to brighten someone's smile, give them a balloon. Uh, if If you go out and you look for the wow, the awesome, the holy crap, if you set your sights on that fabulosity, friends, if you look for it, I promise you, you will find it. We'll see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook 
at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.